Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this toe tag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Today is a bonus episode that we call a toe tag. It's the first chapter from a fresh release in the mystery crime or thriller genre. Today's featured release is 25 to Life by John Lansing. All right, let's jump right into it. Chapter one. Gloria was embarrassingly beautiful first thing in the morning. Her lively, intelligent eyes were the color of cocoa. Her perfect skin was a shade darker. She blew steam over the rim of her coffee cup, stealing herself for the day. Gloria mentally repeated the bullet points she wanted to make with her next group of interviewees. Mugshots of Carl Forbes, a teenage African-American boy, were taped to her mirror, a daily reminder of her life's work. She quickly gathers her overflowing briefcase and iPad and locks the apartment door behind her. Gloria slides behind the wheel of her Fiat, the color of a pistachio, and heads for her first appointment with Councilman Mark Corcoran. Gloria's interview with the Councilman wasn't going well. Saying she worked for Project for the Innocent did her no good. Corcoran had agreed to give her 10 minutes of his time, but the officious man had already checked his watch, twice. Corcoran had grown up. Corcoran had grown up in the Mar Vista area back in the day. It was a lower middle-class neighborhood filled with modest bungalows set on half lots, blue-collar workers, immigrants, and a mix of street gangs. He was a self-made man, a success story, a working-class kid who had risen so high he had political aspirations beyond his tenure with city council. I'm a big fan of your program, Corcoran said. His unblinking eyes used to intimidate had no effect on Gloria. But I believe your client is a guilty man. I followed the case. Hell, we all knew the kid. Quiet type, lived a few blocks over, didn't run with our set. Hard to believe him capable of such brutality but an eyewitness saw him in the general area around the time of the murder. More important, the man confessed to the crime. Gloria was prepared for this. Carl says the arresting officers tortured the confession out of him. He was 17 years old, 36 hours without food or bathroom facilities. And look at the photograph, it's clear he's been beaten. The councilman glanced at the photo and handed it back. He was picked out of a lineup. Eyewitnesses are notoriously unpredictable, she said. If the cops coerced the confession, it's not a stretch to think that they might have manipulated the lineup. And none of his DNA, his semen, was found on or in the victim's body. Shelley Goldstein had been sexually assaulted before she was murdered. I believe Carl was set up. He's already served 23 years of his life sentence for a murder he didn't commit. Corcoran wasn't moved. He accepted the jury's verdict and wouldn't be swayed. He looked down at her overflowing briefcase before continuing. Shelley was a lovely girl, and she was rich, he said. None of the boys in our neighborhood stood a chance in hell with her. I'm sorry, but there's nothing more I can add. One of your friends told me you had a big crush on her, Gloria said. We all had crushes on her, he said. Who were you talking to? He asked, now with attitude. 
I don't reveal sources, Gloria said. Corcoran rose from his power desk. Good luck with the case. I respect what you're doing. Gloria understood an exit line when she heard one. She nodded and walked out. Gloria had some time to kill, a couple of hours before her next interview. She picked up a latte and a croissant from her favorite coffee house and took a window seat. She called Professor Ted Andrews, who ran Project for the Innocent, and filled him in on her less than stellar performance. Her mentor wasn't pleased. It's a little early in the game to be burning bridges, Ted said to a contrite Gloria. I know you're right, Gloria said. I get it. I get it. But he was so arrogant, she said, shaking her head in frustration. Don't beat yourself up. You're doing a good job. Ted counseled her to take a few days, consolidate her notes, and then revisit the case. Not what Gloria wanted her to hear. And then as an afterthought, she said, I think I'm being followed. Well, that got the professor's attention. Gloria explained that it was a SUV with tinted windows. She picked up a strange vibe. She'd made a few off-the-wall turns and well, he was gone. She started questioning herself, said it was probably nothing. The professor reminded her when they exonerated one of their clients, someone else's career and reputation sustains damage. It's a dangerous business they're in. He tells her to trust her instincts, and Gloria takes that to heart and signs off. As Gloria drove into the Del Rey, a wildly diverse neighborhood in West Los Angeles, she thought of Carl's photographs taped to her bedroom mirror. Around the photos were his multiple handwritten letters, carefully constructed, flawless penmanship, scotch taped and all but covering the glass. Carl Forbes deserved justice. Gloria pulled to the curb and gave herself the once over in the rearview mirror. Pleased her eyes showed no stress from her interview with the councilman, she exited her car. Hannah Cook was standing on a postage-sized porch of a tired California bungalow. She was pushing 50, but giving 60 a run for its money. She had the wrinkled skin and puckered lips of a smoker. So what can I tell you about the bastard? Hannah asked, droll. Gloria shared a conspiratorial grin, put the subject at ease she'd been taught, and they might share their secrets. What do you remember about the case, she asked. It was back in 2000, the sexual assault and brutal murder of a young co-ed. Gloria reached into her briefcase. This is a picture of Carl when he was 17. She handed Hannah the photo and gave the woman a moment to study the image. What did Kevin have to do with it, she asked. Well, I was hoping you could tell me, Gloria said. He's on the record as being part of the team who arrested the young man. No, she said wistfully, handing the photo back. She saw Gloria glance at the nicotine stains between her index and middle fingers and reflexively covered them with her other hand. The less I knew, the better off I was. Kevin was an angry man who never should have been a cop. It went to his head, that and the rye whiskey. Only thing that made him feel good, then it made him mean. When he wasn't getting his kicks arresting dirtbags, he'd start in on me. Was he ever cited for physical violence, Gloria asked. Once or twice, Hannah said. It wasn't like it is now. People with their cell phones and cameras and just tried to arrest a cop back then for slapping around his wife. I'm sorry to hear that, Gloria said and decided to drop the hammer. Carl claims that your ex and his partner 
beat him into giving a false confession. Hannah considered that. I almost shot Kevin one night, had his gun. He woke up staring down the barrel. I started to cry and he slapped the thing out of my hands and gave me something to cry about. First call I made after they unwired my jaw was to a lawyer. I still can't chew on the left side. I ordered a five pound lobster the night I heard he passed away. The conversation was going nowhere. Nothing but conjecture to corroborate her inmate's story. But you know what, Hannah said, and then not waiting for a reply. As bad as my ex was, his partner was worse. Gloria perked up. Terry Brannigan? That's the one, Hannah said. He's a bigwig, Gloria said. I interviewed him last week. He's still on the force. With their closure rate, no surprise, she said. I heard him brag that he could beat a confession out of a dead man. Sweet guy, she said, dripping with sarcasm. What's he doing now? He's the commanding officer of the Metro Division, Gloria said. He leads five field platoons, SWAT teams. Makes sense, Hannah said, men and their toys. The two of them thought they were Starsky and Hutch. My ex died of cancer. My theory? It was the whiskey mixed with a healthy dose of guilt. But Brannigan? I don't think he ever looked back. Get the stats, move up a pay grade. Really? Gloria asked. It must have worked for him because he's one of the men being considered to replace the chief of police. Hannah's eyes narrowed, trying to make sense out of Brannigan's success. Well, sorry I couldn't be more helpful. If you have anything else, feel free to run it by me. Might shake something loose. Who knows? I'll do that, Gloria said. But, Hannah amended, if it ends with my word against Brannigan's, I won't testify. Brannigan hadn't been defensive when Gloria laid out the allegation against him. It was more a world-weary reaction. Look, he had said, Carl's accusation of police brutality was a lie. It was the cost of doing business if you were an active player on the force. Nothing more, nothing less. Gloria didn't believe Brannigan for a second. Hannah's story of her ex-husband and Brannigan's violence seemed to support Carl's version of his arrest and confession. She would keep Brannigan at the top of her list while applying for a writ of habeas corpus. It would allow the team to reopen the case against Carl Forbes, the first step in gaining his freedom. Gloria jumped into her car, grabbed the iPad from her briefcase, and entered a few salient points from the interview. Feeling vindicated from the morning's debacle, she buckled up and sped off. It was dusk as she made her way toward Twin Dragon Restaurant. She glanced in the rearview mirror and saw a gray Ford Explorer several lengths behind her. Was it the same SUV she saw before? She wasn't sure. There were lots of SUVs in LA. When she checked again, it was gone. Twin Dragon had been a mainstay in Los Angeles since 1962. She'd meet her father there for a quick lunch when he could break away from his work at his law firm in Century City. Modest prices, great food, just what her rumbling stomach demanded. Shrimp with black bean sauce, kung pao chicken, braised string beans, and then, oh what the heck, an order of pork and vegetable dumplings. It wasn't a great day, but at least dinner in the comfort of her apartment was going to be a winner. Gloria pulled her car onto the side street next to the restaurant. All was quiet, and she'd only been gone a few minutes. She draped the sweater over her briefcase in the rear compartment, locked up, 
and hoofed it around to the front entrance to pick up her order. Five minutes, in and out. When Gloria emerged, her hands were full and the smell incredible. She rounded the corner and had to look twice to make sense out of what she was seeing. Broken shards of glass fanned out around the back of her car. She took another tentative step forward and could clearly see the shattered rear window of her Fiat. Her heart pounded. Her breath came in fits and starts. She prayed she was wrong. Yet as she neared her car, her worst fears were realized. Her briefcase was gone. Her throat went dry and she stifled tears. She set the bag of food on top of the car and took in the scene. She looked around her car, checked the traffic on Pico and the quiet side street for anything out of the ordinary. Nothing. No one who could have witnessed the break-in. No one who cared that she was caught in a nightmare. Gloria did a quick mental inventory of everything in her briefcase and came to the sickening realization that her iPad and four months of hard work had been stolen. In some instances, information and notes of interviews that took hours to create and hadn't been copied. The floodgates opened and tears streamed down her cheeks. Lightheaded, she had to lean against the car to keep her balance. The doors were still locked. She grabbed her keys and dropped them on the glass-covered street before picking them up with shaky hands. She keyed the door and searched the car. Nothing else had been taken. The glove box was undisturbed. Broken glass inundated the rear compartment and the sweater her mother gave her for her birthday. Was it an opportunistic crime? The thief saw an object, did a smash and grab, and disappeared. Could it have been that simple? I mean, what else could it have been? The SUV? Gloria knew she was paranoid now, scared silly. She chastised herself for overreacting. She could reconstruct most of the notes, some of the interviews from her handwritten pile of yellow pads. Some were duplicates, and the original files were stacked on her dining room table. She did another full-around scan of the adjacent area. No suspicious movement. She spied no cameras on the nearby buildings, so no good would come of calling the police. Gloria grabbed a few napkins out of her takeout order and whisked the shards of glass that had landed on her front seat onto the curb. She turned on her headlights and pulled out, driving toward home. Her head still spinning, Gloria pulled to the stop, grabbed her cell phone, and called her father. After she told him what happened, he replied quickly, Look, darling, don't go home to an empty apartment, he said, with a tenderness that belied his courtroom reputation. I don't want you to be alone. Drive over the hill and spend the night here. We can file a police report in the morning and set you up with a rental car. I got Chinese, she said. Shrimp with black bean sauce, he asked. And Kung Pao chicken. I'll chill the Chardonnay, he said. I don't want you to worry. Drive safely, honey. Okay, Dad. Thank you. Gloria clicked off, feeling loved, and headed for the last Virginis exit off the 101 and her favorite route from Calabasas to the beach. Malibu Canyon Road was two lanes of pure driving pleasure. Winding blacktop cutting through deep canyons and steep cliffs with sandstone outcroppings. It came to a dramatic end, revealing the Pacific Ocean and Malibu. She took a deep breath and exhaled slowly. The missing rear window of her Fiat created a strange whistle as she powered the small car around the curves at 45 miles an hour. 
Her stomach rumbling got the better of her, and Gloria rummaged around in the bag with one hand and plucked out a dumpling. She smiled and took a bite and glanced in the rearview mirror. A large SUV appeared around one rocky turn, moving fast, and she hoped the driver wasn't going to be a pain and force her to pick up the pace. Gloria made short work of the dumpling and used two hands to maneuver around a tight curve. Her discomfort swelled as she realized the SUV was closing the distance. Headlights on high beam. It was just an irritant at first. Her body tensed as she realized the vehicle was bearing down on her. It was a gray Ford Expedition. Gloria wondered if she was going mad. It looked like the same car she'd seen before. No, it was impossible, she thought but picked up her pace. 50 miles an hour was pushing it around the tight curves and as fast as she was willing to go, screw the driver. The SUV was tracking her now, tight on her fender, headlights blinding. She grabbed her cell phone and hit her father's number with one hand. Gloria slid around the next turn and the phone dropped out of her hand. She prayed there was a turnout ahead, but no such luck. Back off, she shouted over the whine of the air, thundering through the broken window as her speedometer hit 60 miles an hour. The gray SUV loomed in the rear view, and she instinctively pushed the car to 65, white-knuckling the steering wheel. Gloria drifted over the broken white line as a car horn blasted from the opposite direction, horn blaring, scaring the crap out of her. She came dangerously close to skidding onto the narrow gravel shoulder and colliding with the sheer cliff face. And then, oh Christ, she felt the SUV nudge the back of the car. Gloria stomped, pedal to metal. Her small sedan rocketed to 70 miles an hour. The SUV tapped her rear bumper again. Gloria's eyes teared. She was losing it, but she fought to keep the car on the road. The SUV slammed into harder. Stop it, she cried. And then the power punch. 5,000 pounds of steel rammed her compact car. Gloria couldn't hear the squealing tires over the sound of her own screams as she went into a death spin. Gloria knew she was going to die a moment before her car came out of a 360 on the opposite side of the road, barreling toward the cliff at 70 miles an hour. Her Fiat smashed into the rocky berm and she went airborne. Time stood still. The only sound, the whistling wind and Gloria's heartbeat. The rock-strewn riverbed grew in size, filling her field of vision as she dropped out of the sky and bore witness to her impending death. The pistachio fiat that had brought Gloria so much joy in life burst into flames on impact and enveloped her broken body. Well, there we have the gut-wrenching, hard-punching first chapter of 25 to Life. So here's my review. Uh, 25 to Life is a P.I. mystery. It's also characterized as noir fiction and crime thriller. I know there are so many genres and subgenres inside of mystery, crime, and thriller. Jack Bertolino is back for his fifth case. A lost student is dead. Her crime, working on a project for the innocent case on behalf of Carl Forbes. What Gloria Milhouse finds, well, it stinks. Before she can move on it, Someone moves on her, as you just heard. Now Jack is on the case, looking at the scum behind the shiny badges of the LAPD SWAT team to find the answers. Bottom line, 25 to Life is for you if you like classic hard-boiled PIs who punch first and ask questions later, and do the dirty work that the good cops can't. 
All right, so let's talk about the strengths of this story. The setup is classic PI. A bright talent law student is killed in a murder made to look like an accident. Okay, I don't consider this a spoiler because if it was an accident, there wouldn't be a story. Gloria is connected. Her father is a renowned attorney and political supporter who asks his friend, the Los Angeles mayor, for help. And that help comes in the form of Jack, a former NYPD inspector with over 25 years experience who's turned private investigator in LA. I really like this setup because it gives Jack a legit reason to dive into the case and also the political backing to go places and ask the questions that he needs to. The pacing of this book is excellent. At no point did my attention wander, did I get bored. I got a little anxious a few times, but you know, that's a good thing. This is Jack's fifth case and I have not read the prior ones and this one stood solidly on its own. Lansing did an excellent job of briefly, briefly providing any needed backstory without giving us a full-page synopsis of the pri prior cases. Well, I'm glad I could read the story to you well because now I'm like totally stumbling over my notes here. It's obvious that Jack's team uh, were in the previous books as they were fully developed characters and they're very comfortable in their own skin. So I like the character, like the character development. Where did the story fall short of ideal? There wasn't a place where it fell short of ideal per se. There were a few grammar typos such as quotes in the wrong place, but those were minor and didn't detract from the story. Well, I thought the final conversation, goodness. Well, I thought the final confrontation with the big bad was excellent in terms of action and excitement. I did roll my eyes at the setup. It was the only time I thought Jack acted out of character. Jack is brave and aggressive, yes, but he's smart, manipulating situations to put the odds in his favor. This time, at the conclusion, he chooses to run into hell carrying a water bottle. At least he put a vest on. Obviously, this was more of a pet peeve of mine. I bet most of you who love hard-boiled PIs will just love it the way it is. So let's learn a little bit more about John Lansing. John Lansing is the author of four thrillers featuring Jack Bertolino, The Devil's Necktie, Blonde Cargo, Dead is Dead, and The Fourth Gunman, as well as the true crime nonfiction book, Good Cop, Bad Money, written with former NYPD inspector Glenn Morisano. He has been a writer and supervising producer on Walker, Texas Ranger, and the co-executive producer of the ABC series Scoundrels and co-wrote two MOWs for CBS. The Devil's Necktie is in development at Andrea Lido's Amuse Entertainment with Barbara DeFina attached as a producer. A native of Long Island, John now resides in Los Angeles. So 25 to Life is being promoted by Partners in Crime Tours who represent a network of 300 bloggers offering tailor-made virtual book tours and marketing options for crime, mystery, and thriller writers from around the world. Founded in 2011, they offer services for authors at all stages of their career. PICT prides itself on its tailored packages for authors with a personal touch from the tour coordinators. For more information, check out their website, partnersincrimetours.com. The link is in the show notes. So with that, I'll invite you to come back next week for a regular episode of Mysteries to Die For, Season 6, Things That Go Jack in the Night. It's my turn at the plate with the skewer jackalope caper, where the American mythological beast, the jackalope, is our feature jack. 
With that, I'll turn to my Jack and say, take us out. <laughs>